0: Democracia e liberdade só existe quando as suas respectivas forças Armadas assim o quer. You know I'm totally off script right now. Want to be nasty, do
1: mine? Do mine. We're going to have the wall. We're building the wall. We're building the wall folks. We're building the wall. Através do voto,
0: você não vai mudar nada nesse país, Nada, absolutamente
1: nada. And the reality now is that we are the party of the people. Hello there, and welcome back to Season 2 of Powcast, a podcast by The Project on Autocratic Legalism, or POW. I'm Fabio de Silva at the University of Oklahoma. POW is an academic endeavor where we seek to understand how law is used by rising autocrats to consolidate power or by those who are trying to resist those moves. You can learn more about the project at autocratic-legalism.net. My guest today is Michael McCann. Michael is the Gordon Hirabayashi Professor for the Advancement of Citizenship at the University of Washington where he served as the chair of the political science department and was the leading architect of the Law, Societies, and Justice program in the Comparative Law and Society Studies Center, both of which he directed for a decade until 2011. Michael was also the president of the Law and Society Association from 2011 to 2013, and he is very well known in the Law and Society community for his guitar skills, I mean, for his studies on legal mobilization, how ordinary people, especially workers, engage with rights and the legal process to pursue social change, and how that experience changes their political consciousness. One of his books, Rights at Work, Pay Equity Reform and the Politics of Legal Mobilization, has become a true classic in this vein of studies. Legal mobilization is a puzzling theme in a project like PAL. The idea that oppositions, minority groups, and activists will use rights in the legal process to seek protection against arbitrary rule is almost a commonplace in liberal constitutional systems. But what happens when arbitrary rulers like Bolsonaro or Trump are themselves using rights talk in the legal process to assert their power? To seek some light about this question, I was for a while tempted to talk to Michael. But what got me to reach out to him was an essay he wrote with Phyllis Karaman, published last year in the Annual Review of Law and Social Science, which both speaks to and challenges some of the ideas that we have been discussing here on the podcast. In that essay, Michael and Phyllis claim that the distinction between liberal and illiberal or authoritarian legal orders is misleading. Because most countries, including the United States, are governed by plural, dual, or hybrid legal institutions, principles, and practices. They also place this duality, or hybridity, in a political-economic context, particularly what they call racial capitalism. When I read that essay, I was, first of all, curious about why Michael had moved from studies on legal mobilization to a general theorization about states. But I was also fascinated by this notion of dual or hybrid legal systems and how it helps us see autocratic legalism not as a breakdown of perfect liberal legal orders, but rather as a rearrangement of approaches and practices that compete within modern states and that fit larger power structures. It could take me an entire episode just to talk about the insights I had from talking to Michael about these issues, not least because his responses also touched on issues we have been discussing on this podcast, like the myth of U.S. exceptionalism and how studies on the Global South can help illuminate what goes on in the Global North. But I'm going to save you all from that and take you directly to the interview after a brief message from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Tomás Díaz de la Rubia. I am the Vice President for Research and Partnerships at the University of Oklahoma, and my office is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Research at OU is thriving. Guided by OU's strategic plan, we're igniting and catalyzing research that changes lives. Learn more about our work at ou.edu slash research. Michael McCann, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You come from political science, where there are very well-established debates about the character of state power, in which scholars use categories like democracy, authoritarianism, and liberalism to name government systems around the world. But your scholarship took a more peculiar route, which, as far as I'm concerned, is what makes you a great social legal scholar. You devoted your career to studying not governments, but people and how these people, especially workers, seek change through the legal process, and how, through those experiences, they develop a transformative political consciousness. Years later, you're discussing the character of legal systems based on categories like liberal and illiberal. What made you change your focus and uh, engage with those categories and efforts of theorization about the character of state power?
0: Um, I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, one thing I'm old, or I've been getting older for a long time. And with that is just expanding curiosity. Uh, when I did my earlier work, it was all US focused um, book on public interest, liberalism and, and rights at work. And I think especially rights at work, which seemed to um, become well-known and won awards and so forth. But I was always asked to think more comparatively and more broadly. And I began doing that in my teaching. And it also turned out that I began working with graduate students from around the world. Um, For a period of time, I had a long line of graduate students from Turkey, from Europe, from uh, South America, South Africa, uh, East and Southeast Asia. And so I was working with students about parts of the world about which I knew relatively little. And so I had to learn a lot. and, And I have to say that they became the teachers of me, uh, not only learned a lot of information about what they're doing, but they were taking the kinds of approaches, or most of them, were take the kinds of approaches that I had developed in rights at work, legal mobilization, uh, and mobilizing legal rights to challenge histories of injustice and inequality and hierarchy, and, and transplanting those to different contexts. And what I emphasized from the beginning, and I think what was somewhat characteristic of rights at work, was an emphasis on context was analyzing the context in which struggles take place. Um, and I think that that was one of the major contributions I made to that literature that had developed in the US on law and social change, was to add, use social movement theory and, and, and macroeconomic theory and other uh, analytical frameworks to analyze complex, analyze complex contexts. And so I just became more attentive to differences in context and how that matters for the kinds of legal struggles that take place uh, that are possible and how those struggles um, develop over time and become more or less uh, successful or impactful. So that was part of it was just through mentoring graduate students who were who were doing work and doing my work for me, carrying my ideas uh, to other places. And through the whole time, I really uh, began to rethink a lot of what um, I was doing. I was also asked to increasingly to write about law and social movements in comparative perspective, um, to, to engage with the literature that not only my students were producing, but that other scholars were producing about other parts of the world. And so I began to do that very slowly um, in the early 2000s. I was asked to write a number of general review essays on law and social movements uh, and to add a comparative perspective. So it was most most of these forces were kind of independent of me to some degree, but it was also my own natural curiosity. I certainly recognized the <clears throat> narrowness of a U.S.-centered focus, especially for U.S. scholars. U.S. scholars, especially in political science who study the U.S., generally do not think in very comparative cross-national and global terms. And I was always aware of that, and that was always part of my teaching, was it's important to teach American politics with an eye to especially Europe, but what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, And that's where I began as a scholar, actually. Originally began as a scholar, not as a socio-legal scholar, but as a scholar trying to understand why it was that Europe developed a much more robust social democratic tradition and stronger, uh, more positive context for labor union development and workers' rights than the U.S. That was When I went to graduate school, that was my question. So so it's not like I didn't have a comparative perspective um, from that point. And to some extent, all that came together uh, in the book that I was had been working on for a long time since the 1990s that became Union by Law uh, and then went into hiatus for about 10 or 12 years. And then I resumed again around 2010.
1: I sadly did not have the chance to read this latest book of yours. Why don't you give us a summary of what it is about?
0: That is a book where I very clearly took on what I had been teaching for a long time was to challenge the, American, the myth of American exceptionalism and to challenge the view that uh, the American legal system is a liberal constitutional order. Uh, and I did that through um, studying the history of the American colonial venture, imperial venture in the Philippines and the ways in which it built on and extended the traditional settler colonialism of racial capitalist development. And that became eventually the primary theoretical schema was the history of racial capitalism, which of course is not just a history of the US, but was to some degree inherited and adapted from European colonial traditions and began thinking more broadly about racial capitalism, how it's played out historically uh, in Europe, North America and then uh, manifest in colonial uh, relationships uh, especially in the global South, and then anti-colonialism and then colonial, post-colonial uh, developments. And all that, to some degree, was directly relevant and addressed in my book about U.S. intervention and the Philippines and then the conscription of Filipino laborers who had been displaced by American corporations from their land uh, as peasants and turned into low-wage proletarian laborers. And then they were conscripted to continue that work in the U.S. West Coast, um, and what I was interested in is is how Americans reconciled an obviously racialized capitalist form of domination uh, in the Philippines as a colonial project, and how they reconciled that with the, with the traditional liberal constitutionalist ethos, which obviously uh, leads one to think that there that there never was a dominance or hegemony of liberal Ideas, uh, but in fact, there were other traditions uh, out of the settler colonial project, uh, other legal forms that coexisted with and inter- interacted with uh, the liberalism that basically white male property owners uh, enjoyed under the law or experienced under the law, and that's part of the argument uh, that's manifest in the paper that you're talking about. Is the dual traditions a liberal tradition for one group of people? basically white male property owners, and then another tradition of much more illiberal and or repressive or authoritarian law that was extended to African slaves. And then after that, to the Jim Crow period, it was extended to uh, immigrants, to Native Americans, to women. And of course, all that history is familiar to everybody, certainly to Americans, although it's under attack in the US now to even teach about that. (laughs) those histories. Uh, But nevertheless, that wasn't new, but it was rethinking the fact that all of this has coexisted with what's presumed to be liberalism. And I think in the post-war period with the triumph, or not the triumph, but the ascendance, both in the U.S. but also around the world, certainly in Europe, of a kind of liberal constitutionalism uh, that was presumed, that I think obscured those other traditions, recognizing that there were other legal traditions and other legal forms Uh, well-developed legal orders in America that had coexisted, and secondly, which not only were were supplanted or removed by post-war developments, politics, and struggles over civil rights and the like, but which continued to some degree as residue uh, among the um, ascendant liberal constitutionalism and to, to some extent became very powerful in the retrenchment. Uh, away from those, some of those liberal advances in the 1970s and 1980s, right up through Donald Trump.
1: There has been for a while a tendency in political science to move away from a binary classification of political systems as democratic and authoritarian, and to recognize, for example, that some systems can have both democratic and authoritarian components, or that in systems that are liberal democratic, illiberal practices can grow and they can subvert the liberal democratic character of the systems from within. How close to these developments would you say that your idea of dual states is?
0: I should say that a lot of this I did not derive from political science. Uh, I was mostly from sociolegal studies, um, quite honestly. Um, I, I I don't read that much political science. I probably shouldn't say that. (laughs) But but I certainly have a lot of political science colleagues who are interested in these types of things. But it was more from, uh, I'll make an exception to that. And I think one of the times I really began thinking about this was there was a debate among political scientists about the colonial era in the Philippines and about the forms of rule that emerged because basically what the US did after killing uh, millions of people and imposing a new order, they created a kind of faux New Deal constitutional uh, liberal government with separation of powers um, and ostensibly the rule of law and lots of lawyers in with courts. But I, even though i say as faux because that was the larger scheme, but in practice it didn't work like that at all. Um, courts were extremely weak and limited, provided very few um, limitations on executive power or military rule. Um, the representation in the legislature was very class and race-based so that the marginalized racial and ethnic populations and the, the poorest of Filipinos were not represented very much at all, that the dominant um, representation was by the old elites within the Philippines and that leadership continued to be a product of the powerful families uh, that long had dominated or at least had dominated uh, since the Spanish era of colonialism. And and so you get this overlay that looks quite liberal from a distance and superficially, but when you get into it, the politics of power is very different. And there was a robust debate among political scientists, including one of my very, very good friends, Joel Migdal, who made a particular argument about the new Philippine power structure. And he debated others about whether this was something new or whether it was just the resurgence of pre existing power structures. But it was part of a longer uh, engagement I had with Joel that influenced my work a lot going back into the US to not think about states as unitary creatures, but in fact, states are very fragmented. One part of the state might be quite liberal, another part might be quite authoritarian, and to think about state-society relations. In some ways, different um, segments of the state are less related to each other than they are to segments of society that they answer to, where there is embedded power. You know, old families are embedded in one place, whereas there may be more democratic, liberal elements Uh, located somewhere else, and to think more complexly. And and, and trying to think that through in that historical development in the Philippines, built on my own thinking about the United States, again, not as a unitary liberal constitutional order, even in the post-war era, but as much more complex, much more um, of a hybrid order, and one that's very hard to generalize about in any categorical kinds of ways. and that just fed into my longstanding I think skepticism about thinking about authoritarian regimes for or illiberal regimes or illiberal legal orders versus liberal. Uh, I, I think it's also an awareness of, of, of a lot of great scholarship about how elements of American liberal legality were being imported and repurposed, for example in China. Um, I learned a lot from the work of Mary Gallagher um, on on workers and the uh, challenges of workers who are moving into urban areas in China. And also my colleague, Susan Whiting, who is writing about land reform and the displacement of landowners uh, as the state um, took over land for development purposes, commercial development purposes. And what they both show is the implementation of various classic liberal mechanisms of giving people rights rights. Creating mechanisms for disputing and encouraging them to file lawsuits or to dispute within more informal means within these mechanisms. And it looked just like post, it looked just like the civil rights regime of the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s to some degree, and American civil law tradition um, uh, of of giving people rights and creating mechanisms and encouraging them to to bring their grievances to the government and work them out. And and it's obvious and, and the purpose. I, and I think Mary Gallagher emphasizes this more was for the Chinese state to actually increase their control over workers because they could co opt collective organization and more radical union development and politics and fragment and individualize uh, grievances by workers, and to some degree, the same by those who, who'd lost their land um, to takings by the government. And that way, to reduce conflict, to reduce political opposition and to insulate the government more from its various developmental kinds of projects. And that was an argument that had been made a lot about what happens with civil rights in the US. It's a way of co-opting and fragmenting collective action. Go back to the classic argument of Karl Marx and on the Jewish question, which I teach all the time. I was just teaching the other day about people win political rights And that may be a product of collective struggle, but then everybody has private rights and they individualize and turn into conflict with each other and become depoliticized. And you get this: the rise of market competition and alienation and and that permits unequal power and domination. Uh, Sort of see that working out in China. What we don't know is how much the Chinese state elites really knew that but that's what they were doing or that was their purpose, but there's some evidence of that. So again, it alerted me to that and I just became interested in many ways that s- ostensibly liberal procedures and policies in it and institutional mechanisms uh, borrowed from liberalism, but for depoliticizing in quite conservative or state controlling kinds of tactics. It was also the time that I spent a year at Princeton in 2011 or so uh, with with, um, Kim Shepley in the Law and Public Affairs program. And of course, her terrific work about the ways in which um, um, various leaders, especially in Hungary and Eastern Europe but elsewhere, were working within constitutions to reconstruct and repurpose what looked like liberal constitutional mechanisms for quite ill-liberal purposes. Um, I think you use repurposing in your paper, which I think is, is in some ways a, a very useful uh, and apt uh, term. And again, that contributed to my own thinking, not only about what's going on in the U.S., but, but expanded my thinking about what was going on in other parts of the world. And I began to integrate much of that into my graduate teaching.
1: Yeah, there's a long tradition of studies of legal transplants that look at how liberal institutions are being manipulated on the ground by those who are importing them. But a lot of these studies tend to reify the institutions being exported, as if the problem was not in the institutions being transplanted. These institutions are inherently virtuous. The problem is in the countries that are importing them. What is uh, precious about your work is that you show that these institutions are subject to manipulation in the places where they come from as well, namely the United States, which should change completely how we look at these transplants and how we set our expectations about what these liberal institutions can do.
0: I totally agree that what we saw in the post-war era and what what I saw a lot of the 1980s and 1990s was efforts of the legal profession or representatives of the legal profession to proselytize about the American legal system abroad. And I was invited to lots of places, including to Brazil and to Colombia and to South Africa and everything to talk about, you know, American legal mobilization and all that. And the first thing I would always say is don't believe the lawyers. Their vision of law is is an unreal and fantastic one. And I don't think they really understand how the American legal system really works at one level. They don't understand much of the impact of what they're doing and the ways in which uh, those legal procedures and rights and all of that is being appropriated and exploited um, by powerful interests within society. Um, And secondly, I don't think that the American legal system is uniformly a liberal legal system in the ways I've already talked about. So that was often my message and, and audiences were often very disappointed. They wanted me to come and talk about how great America is and how they can transplant, you know, American institutions to lead to democracy and popular uh, movements and, and, and all that. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry to, you know, to disappoint you. But I said, but I think then I would have some things to say about some of the ironies and paradoxes and contradictions of what goes on in America. Not that they're all bad, but that things are just more complicated. And so that was my goal. And then sometimes I think that turned into very useful or at least audiences thought it was very useful where that, where I went from that starting point. They I said, this is very different. This isn't what the American lawyers tell us.
1: And how, on the other hand, does this notion of dual states help explain current undemocratic developments in the United States like Trumpism?
0: When I wrote my book on uh, the book, or which I co-wrote with George Lovell, but I mostly wrote it because he had to drop out, uh, it, it culminates in the 1980s, which was really a, the first high point in, I think, the retrenchment against the civil rights era. And it culminates in a very famous case where the courts killed what was called the disparate impact standard for anti-discrimination law. But a whole lot, the attack on class actions and the, the backlash against affirmative action and just a whole lot of things we identify with neoliberalism. But what I began thinking about in writing this book, as I've already mentioned, was this isn't entirely new. This isn't just backlash. This is also a resurgence of old traditions, of old discourses, of old legal formulas, of old ideological um, premises about the market over the state and why it shouldn't regulate, and and also very much about race, about racial inferiority and racial stigma, about gender stigma. Um, My book, Rights at Work, was about gender-based wage equity. The Union by Law is about the, the racial version of that to some degree. So I saw this. And, and I began thinking, this it, it's wrong just to say this is one step forward or two steps forward and one step back, or, except in the sense that it's, it is really a resurgence from the past of old ideas that are being reconstructed in sometimes in new forms, but sometimes just in the original form as well. So, and I saw this developing and it, and it was very much on my mind when Barack Obama was elected because I said, you know, he's gonna be boxed in that while people have a lot of faith in him, he's just not gonna be able to do much because all of the, all of these, so many forces have developed that are that he presents a challenge to and which are really just not going to care for his agenda. And then when Trump came along, I have to say, I said this in the preface of the book, even I was surprised by Trump, but only a little bit because tr- what Trump was doing to me very much was again, Recapturing many of those older traditions in America, which I identify with illiberal law, authoritarian law, and, and, and putting them to work. Um, a lot was written in the American press during uh, when Trump was president about how Trump was undermining the rule of law, eroding the rule of law, sidestepping the rule of law, contributing to the decline of the rule of law. I mean, I was just teaching in my undergraduate class about this the other day, and I had, I had about 20 headlines just capturing that theme. And every day you would see it in the New York Times and Washington Post and, the, and a lot of the poor liberal magazines. And I said on one hand, that's one, there's an argument there, but that's an argument of liberal lawyers. Those who really believe that liberal constitutionalism was ascendant and was truly a consensus that continues to prevail, which I think is just wrong. And another way to do it is that Trump does believe in the rule of law, but it's a different rule of law than what liberal lawyers mean, or that, that form of legality that we identify with um, liberalism after after World War II. And it's one that that's built on those older authoritarian traditions of, of white male authority to which um, People of color, and to low-income people, and to uh, that you know, anti-feminists and anti-immigrant and isolationists—all those things are are being or recycled in Trump. Now they they are moderated because if there's still enough liberalism around that they have to. There's more dog whistles, and it's it's not as explicit as it was in an earlier period, but it became pretty explicit. Uh, and I said, you know, and so you could actually construct a vision. And I may actually write, that may be a, a research project I take up soon, trying to reconstruct what that, that rule of law vision was and its historical antecedents in America during the Trump period. I have I lectured on that. And I, I, gave, I was in Paris and, and Europe for six, 10 weeks, um, couple, two years ago, and I was giving lectures on this, but it was all very speculative and Trump was still in power. It wasn't a done deal. But anyhow, I, I, that's, that's how I think about Trump and obviously it's not just Trump that has had a big impact on uh, a segment of American elites, the Republican party, conservatives, including a segment of the business elite. And it shouldn't be entirely surprising because the past has never passed. It still exists in pockets of American culture and institutional life. Um, and that is resurgent is not surprising. And of course that's very parallel to what we see in other parts of the world. Um, it, is, is in regimes that were a bunch of quite authoritarian and non-liberal who then liberal, liberalized to some degree. We see a what, you, what could be called democratic backsliding or, or a regression to more illiberal uh, or more authoritarian purposes. But they're using much of the same mechanisms and the veneer of liberal constitutionalism but reconstructing it for quite different purposes that are much more authoritarian. It seems to me that's parallel to what Trump is doing. Trump not is extreme, perhaps, inconsequential, except consequential because it's in the most powerful country in the world, and so that has consequences for everybody, right?
1: Your paper also traces an important connection between liberal or illiberal legality and political economy. What explains this duality that you claim exists is the badness of law and the state in what you call racial capitalism maybe due to that Marxist influence that you were just letting surface. Why don't you expand this argument here to our audience?
0: I think I've always been fascinated by Marx, particularly the young Marx on the Jewish question and his argument there about liberalism, how the promise of political rights is a political lion's skin and something of an illusion because it really just substantiates the protection for the most important right, which is private property, which not only produces a highly competitive fragmented uh, alienated society of everybody competing with each other. And then eventually as Marx uh, uh, developed his thought, you know, huge inequalities of power that are fundamental to advance capitalism. That's always been very important to me. I wouldn't call myself a Marxist per se. I'm not sure what that it means. I, I've, I've been accused of that, but that's okay. I'm comfortable enough with it. But I think what I only learned or realized as clearly as I think I do see now uh, was in a more recent period about the linkage between capitalist development and racialization, and in the compendium, what we call racial capitalism. And that is what capitalism does is that it assigns value and competitive value. Um, you know, later we talk about commodification, but that but the people are assigned different values um, valuation and devaluation. And capitalism requires. Uh, accumulation that depends on exploiting a um, cheap labor force. And of course, that's an important part of what slavery was, was a non-wage labor force. And then after that, a low wage labor force by African-Americans, three waves of Asian-Americans. That's that was the focus of my book, Um, Mexicans uh, uh, and other immigrant workers. And a capital development depended on that low wage, which produced profits, which then fuel continual capital development. And capitalism built on a history of racialized identification from Europe. Now, that that racial identification was not primarily in terms of skin color historically before whatever one might say the 17th, 18th century. but, it, there, there, but it, there was always an othering going on of those who were less than fully deserving of citizenship. And over time, that became primarily a dichotomy between white and non-white, uh, which to some degree was always there. And I think slavery played a, a major role in that crystallization, the focus on, on skin type, phenotype, skin color as the basis of race, rather than other categories. It, for example, religion was very important. Originally, much of the um, exclusion and devaluation was people who are not Christian, um, and that intersected with race. Of course, when Africans were imported, they were not Christians, but then once they became Christian, it became more complicated. So that's one of the ways in which phenotype becomes more important. Anyhow, so the point is that capitalism and, and racial hierarchy stratification, and by racial, I don't mean just skin type, but creating devalued categories of people who have to perform these functions for capital accumulation and capitalist development develop um, over time. And and that's how I make sense about the development of multiple legal orders. We have, through much of American history, the law of slavery, which is a whole body of law that was quite distinct from that of white property owners. Um, Then we have law that is specific to Jim Crow, We have a whole body of law that's specific to Native Americans that deals. that's not about integration and and segregation, but it's more about sovereignty and so forth, but it's its own body of law. And then there's a a semi-separate body of law that deals with women, uh, confines them to household work and and so forth. Um, And so we have this kind of heterogeneous pluralistic legal system, but it all is driven to some degree by the, by the logics of capitalism. But it, but that's not to say that the race is simply epiphenomenal or a product of capitalism, race takes on its own kind of dynamic over time. So that racism and, and racial classification, racialization has its own dynamic force that isn't simply reduced to the needs of capital. In, in that process, I became very interested in this book by Whitman on the uh, Hitler's American model about the ways in which Hitler and the Nazi regime uh, learn from American Jim Crow about the dual legal system and the dual state and the classic arguments that are made about that. And so, obviously, that uh, unfortunately, I didn't read that book and become fully aware of it uh, until I was almost finished with my own book. So, I didn't develop it much there. I think it plays a bigger role in the paper to which you're referring. Uh, and then, you know, a literature that has now proliferated about dual states and hybrid states, uh, some of which give a lot of attention to what we call racial capitalism, whether you use that label or not, and some of which don't. But I guess I feel fairly committed to keeping the capitalist side of that process in play.
1: And this takes me to a theme that I think is very important to the PAL project, which is resistance and whether resistance can be pursued through law. Much of your scholarship, as I noted in the beginning, has to do with how the powerless use the legal process to resist. And I always thought of you as a more optimistic scholar in this regard. One who certainly doesn't idealize law, but who understands that law can play some role in social change. In the spectrum that goes from Rosenberg, who advises social movements to not use law, and Scheingold who maintains that law can enable a transformative kind of politics, your work seems to be closer to Scheingold. In these dual states that you talk about, can law be a means of resistance? Why and why not?
0: The debate with Rosenberg was one that I didn't initiate and wasn't very interested in. He was much more interested than I was. And it was fairly commonplace to say that, well, I was one who's more optimistic about mobilizing rights than he was and it was there's nothing in my work that's that's optimistic about um, us courts in fact i've written a number of pieces about if you're looking for liberal democratic egalitarian institutions in the u.s history the courts would be the last place you're going to look so 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 i'm actually more probably critical and skeptical of courts than rosenberg or at least as but you know the legal mobilization is different it's about how people mobilize rights and I don't know if I was more optimistic, because I've certainly written a lot of tragic stories. A Union by Law is a story where there's a lot of um, aspirational change through mobilization around rights s- with a- some success, but an awful lot of tragedy. Um, on balance, it is it is not a um, story about great success um, or a you know, positive impact. It's about aspiration, as we say in the book. The, It's true that I I certainly am closer to Scheingold, but I I think what I've realized, and I began to realize this right after I wrote Rights at Work and was pulled into lots of debates about whether it's optimistic. When Scheingold was writing, he was writing amidst that post-war liberal consensus. We assume that, most elites in America were embracing the, what he called the myth of rights, the ideology of law and liberalism. They may have been insincere, they may have been hypocritical, but if they're, they're saying all this and they're acting like it, that becomes a lever to challenge them. You say one thing, you know, you say you believe in legal equality, but how can we have legal equality if, if kids of color are sent to different schools, or if people are poor, or, you know, on, if, 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 if employers are still um, preferring white workers, et cetera, et cetera. And that became a lever for change and when Scheingold's writing, but he was writing just at the moment when the backlash and retrenchment was beginning to happen. And so certainly I've thought about that a lot and that's part of what came became important in the Union by Law book, which is the politics of rights as Scheingold imagined it and to which I've written a lot about works to the extent that elites overtly explicitly articulate liberal vision. Say they believe in liberal vision, regardless of what they do behind the scenes or hypocrisy. But if they don't even say that, if they don't even believe it, or it's palpable that they don't believe it, what are you left with? And I think that became obviously an issue in the Trump era. You could tell Trump, well, um, you know, look at the gap between the promise of democratic legal equality and the fact of radical social inequality. That's a racialized, gendered, and, and immigrant inequality and, you know, and Trump essentially said, I don't care. In fact, that's a good thing. Um, the, the people who deserve to win are winning, et cetera. Now, he didn't quite explicitly say that, but that's the thrust of that older logic that he was recycling and, uh, and giving new, new, new words and new power. So I think that's definitely true. And of course, that's true. And I had begun to think about that a lot as I began my own explorations through teaching and working with graduate students in working in context outside of the United States. We don't have a well-established liberal tradition. Uh, and it's also been, I think, the basis of my engagement with human rights scholars, because I think, you know, a lot of human rights scholars are very optimistic that human rights has increasingly become the secular religion of the world. And you can get this, and, and that's going to make possible more politics of rights advocacy. And I guess I believe that a little bit, but I'm pretty skeptical about it. Uh, because of all these other countercurrents of what we're talking about. Um, and especially because places where you see a lot of rights activism and mobilization are largely not about issues about economic redistribution. I mean, both in terms of wealth and power and so forth. And if that's not part of the effort to change things, the change is going to be fairly minimal and superficial. That's a big claim to make. But I don't see that, the history of legal mobilization politics has contributed a lot to change in economic power, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in management, whether it's in corporate strategies, whether it's in financial policies, whether it's an overall government distribution. Um, I think that's, um, and I think that's one of the things that interests me in rights at work because it was a claim about redistributing power in the workplace to women. Um, part of that was increased pay and women, a lot of women did generate significantly increased wages uh, and did uh, generate significantly increased power in the workplace, uh, collective bargaining and workplace governance. Um, but not surprisingly, that's where the backlash was, is that managed private capital never went along with that. That was almost entirely in the public sector. In the public sector, there was a backlash, whether that was mainly by men against women or whether it's by managers against workers. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on there, but that legacy, which looked to be potentially transformative for a dozen years, all of a sudden died and then, then there was retrenchment. So that's, and that's, I think, one of the dilemmas. And for when we see legacies of, of, of liberalization and constitutionalization, like in South Africa, Um, many people had great hopes, you know, an embrace of human rights and all that. I mean, economic transformation has been basically nil. Um, Still divisions between the haves and the have nots. Um, So that's always, I think, been a basis of my skepticism or lamentation about the limitations of legal politics. Um, As long as property is the first object of constitutional government, um, and all that goes along with that, I think there's real limitations
1: to legal mobilization politics. Your paper ends with the argument that we need to better integrate studies about the United States or democratic countries and studies about transitioning countries or even countries deemed authoritarian. And I think this becomes of special relevance after the January 6 attacks, when we all came to realize not only the contingency of U.S. democracy, but also the similarities in the way democracy has been undermined here and, for example, in my Brazil, uh, such as the use of misinformation and conspiracy theories and abuses of executive powers. What are some of the themes in which you think it's worth comparing the ups and downs of liberal and illiberal legality in the U.S. and other countries?
0: Well, I certainly think that what we've talked about in terms of Liberal institutions and discourse is a veneer for um, reconstruction and repurposing that's less than fully transparent. Um, The kinds of things that that you talk about in in your paper and we see in Hungary and and elsewhere. Um, Because I think that that certainly has gone on the US. And there's a lot of legal scholarship in the US about what look like we might call liberal democratic, egalitarian legal advances that in fact turned out to be anything but, partly by intent, partly not by intent. Um, uh, you know, i studying the history of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's a really interesting study in the US. Um, uh, and often when institutional changes happen that were even intended to be somehow egalitarian, inclusionary, progressive, democratic, they get co-opted very quickly. They either get neutralized or they get taken over by people who turn it to another end. So I think you know, just looking at micro stories like that in places all over the world elevates um, an awareness and a type of research agenda to look simply, and you know, legal scholars to some degree have always done is things aren't the way they look to some degree. But sometimes policies that look quite moderate or even liberal, even authoritarian in the face sometimes turn out to be much more progressive. So it's, it's that, I think, kind of irony. I mean, I think about some of the, uh, just all kinds of work where, again, certain rights agendas are developed and, and, and they end up benefiting those they were not intended to. Uh, so I think that's one thing. It's just encouraging empirical studies that are driven by that theory to say things aren't the way. And I don't mean old-fashioned legal realism. I mean something more analytically sophisticated so we can begin to build expectations about what kinds of changes, institutional changes and reconstructions, whether they're constitutional or administrative or the like um, are are more likely to be transformative and transformative in what kinds of ways. Um, I, I guess I think also Again, paying more attention to political economy, to both uh, what's going on nationally in context of legal struggle and internationally or globally and to those interrelationships. Again, I'm often struck by a lot of the more optimistic stories that are told about human rights struggles around certain kinds of issues where can win cases in court, for example, cases about healthcare and so forth. But the problem is that courts, for the most part, cannot redistribute resources. So you can, people can win rights, but if you don't have an executive and legislated infrastructure of providing the resources to deliver on the services that make those rights meaningful, you're not going to get much change. And I just think that what I see of a lot of studies in rights mobilization, whether it's domestic national rights or whether it's human rights, that there's not enough of that kind of Sensibility. Um, we're, we're to the extent that transformation requires um, some sort of reallocation of resources, and that requires looking beyond courts. In most cases, not that courts don't have any impact on that, and there's all kinds of indirect ways in which courts can have impact on allocations of resources. But real change requires those other branches of governments and mobilized um, populations, just winning rights. Often is a fairly thin achievement, exactly as Marx argued around the Jewish question um, to some degree. Again, I'm not Marxist about it, but that's a, I think that's the that's the only essay I ever talk about it. Marx, you know, at this point in my life.
1: Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you to, as I like to say, open up your library and tell us what are the three key readings that you would recommend to our project and audience. Um,
0: I certainly think that anything written by Kim Shepley um, is important. I lament the fact that um, I was exposed to a lot of her work a decade ago. And I, well, I learned from it. I did not learn as much as I should have and didn't continue to stay in touch with it and continue to think it through that I would be a a smarter uh, scholar and more perceptive if I would have done that. So I would certainly recommend her work. You know, I still think that the work it was initiated by Sally Mary, who sadly is no longer with us, but also Mark Goodell, which I tend to think is kind of her collaborator or her successor to some degree influenced by her or worked with her a lot. And the new work that he's doing on human rights um, is very important. Um, you know, And there's lots of scholars I admire, uh, to be sure, but on these kinds of topics, and I, I think I think the kind of issues we're talking about are really best and most fruitfully being taken up by a younger generation than what I consider my generation, your generation, if I will, if I can identify you as younger and a younger generation to some degree. But I think, you know, in your project on autocratic legalism and international research collaborative and um, the top of the laboratory, I think that while well, I don't know that much about it, seems to me really on to very promising lines of inquiry. And, and I hope that more people are engaging. I look forward to, to paying more attention to that and learning more about it. Um, I, certain, I think all the things we're talking about are increasingly salient and researched by sociolegal scholars around the globe. And I think that's one of the great benefits of the increasing internationalization of law and society studies, not of the American Law and Society Association, but of whatever came out of that initial, that long history to some degree. I think that, um, and, and again, this for me, this is really important for American scholars um, to increasingly be thinking about these parallels and synergies between what's going on in our own legal system, and our own polity, with what's going on around the world in other countries and more broadly uh, globally to some degree.
1: That was Michael McCann. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
1: If you like our series, please share it with your friends on social media. They can access our episodes on the main podcast platforms or on our website. And if you have comments or suggestions regarding the series or our project, drop me a note at fabio.isaisilva at ou.edu.